Psalm 33 uh, says to sing for joy in the Lord. And that's what we're going to do this morning because of the wonderful things that he has done for us through Jesus Christ. And so as we uh, sing these uh, songs, uh, these hymns, um, we want you to just uh, feel free to join in. Uh, for these uh, hymns are cherished by uh, most of us who have uh, been in the church for many years. And uh, even if you're new to the church, uh, we pray that you would uh, get a, a great appreciation for some of the truths that are expressed in these hymns, the wonderful hymns. So the choir is going to come and start us off with a very uh, familiar hymn written by Fanny Crosby. And it's uh, To God Be the Glory. What uh, else can we do but give him the glory for the great things that he has done for us. And so let's rejoice in him as we remember uh, what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us through his death and resurrection. Be the glory, great things he has done, so lovely the world that he gave us his own. For he did his life and atonement of sin and opened the life gate that all may go in. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord.
pray with me, please, as we open our service. Our Father and our God, we give you the glory. We give you the praise. We give you the honor. Because it is due only unto you. Hence, we can sing, to God be the glory. Father, we dedicate ourselves, first of all, to you. And then we dedicate this service to you. Help us to prepare our hearts as we gather around the table to remember your great sacrifice. Help us to be thankful and grateful as we remember you. We want to worship you because of who you are. And we thank you for the freedom and for the opportunity to do so. And so we commit this service to you now as we give you thanks for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. The Bible tells us that you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. So we invite you to stand with us as we sing this next day nothing but the blood of Jesus.
Good morning. As believers today, those of us who have placed faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we have another precious privilege of sharing around the Lord's table. And so for a brief time this morning, I just want to focus on a few thoughts from a familiar passage, one that we normally turn to, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we normally go from verse 23 until the end of the chapter. But this morning, I want to start at verse 17. It's quite a lengthy passage. I won't read it, but I'm sure it's quite familiar. The Lord's Supper is all about remembering and honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. And the purpose of the Lord's Supper, well, first and foremost, it is not a memorial service. Memorial services are held for those who are dead. The Lord's Supper is exactly what it says. It is a time of remembrance. And we can find that in Luke chapter 22 and also in this passage here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's a command for in the passage we read, do this in remembrance of me. It is a time for the church to call to mind the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a time for, for reverence, yet at the same time, it should be a time of extreme celebration. Above all, it must be a time of worship and of focus upon the person of Jesus Christ alone. Every other thought should be stricken from our mind this morning, and he should be allowed to be the centerpiece of the Lord's Supper celebration. But here in this passage, starting at verse 17, the Apostle Paul is dealing with some problems surrounding this celebration in the early Corinthian church. Notice that there are abuses present in the church and in the observance of the Lord's Supper in particular. There is always a danger that we will fall into the same trap which the Corinthians fell. In verse 18 and 19, Paul deals with cliques and divisions. When divisions, cliques, factions, and parties exist in any church, then there is disorder in that church. The bottom line is, is that our minds are not fixed on Jesus as they should be. And then in verse 20, there was self-deception. When they came to, together in this divisive and cliquish atmosphere, they only thought they were partaking of the Lord's Supper. In truth, they weren't remembering and honoring the Lord. They were putting self on display. Everything they did was for their own benefit. That spirit is also evident today. Many go to church just to go through the motions to be seen of men. Sadly, this is the same spirit in which they approach the Lord's Supper. And then in verse 21, there was selfishness and neglect of others. When the Corinthian believers gathered for the Lord's Supper, there was no sense of fellowship or communal celebration. The church broke apart along its internal fault lines. It became a case of every man for himself. God helped the church that ever loses sight 
of one another. And I can think of Jesus Christ's words. He says, by this, all men shall know you are my disciple, my follower, if you have love one for another. In verse 22, they abused the sanctity of the church and shamed the poor. There was a bad spirit surrounding the entire meal. There was no sense of community and brotherly love on a horizontal level. And there was no genuine worship of God on a vertical level. The church had degenerated into nothing more than a social club. We must never allow that to happen here at Calvary Bible Church. But with all these problems, these abuses, there was a penalty associated with partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And just let me read verses 27, 29, and 30. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. Paul was addressing the Corinthian church about their sins. It was their sins which caused them to partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. What were those sins? We just highlighted them. There was division. There was heresy. There was self-deception, selfishness and indulgence, drunkenness, neglect of the poor, irreverence and carelessness in protecting the sanctity of the church, a general spirit of irreverence and thoughtlessness surrounding the entire approach to the Lord's Supper. The bottom line is this. Having sin, in one and, having sin in one's heart and life is what is meant by partaking unworthily. Psalm 66 and 18 says, If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. You may ask the question, how then can anyone be counted worthy? Since our, only, our, our worthiness is only found in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is only when we are counted worthy by him that we are found worthy to partake of the Lord's Supper. And I would like to suggest this morning that there are three basic necessities for being counted worthy. That we walk in constant confession. Two, that we walk in constant repentance. And three, that we walk in constant praise of his person, his grace, and his work. It's all about him. All about him. There are consequences for partaking unworthily. We become guilty of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, we are held accountable for his death when we partake of the Lord's Supper unworthily. I would like to suggest that there is five sins, terrible sins, that we are guilty of if we do this. One, we insult Christ. Two, we offend Christ. Three, we trample Christ underfoot. Four, we treat the death of Christ as a meaningless thing. And five, we shame the name of Christ. And then in verse 28 and 29 of this passage in 1 Corinthians, 
when we, we condemn ourselves, when we fail to examine ourselves, we bring damnation on our lives. That does not mean we will go to hell. It does mean that we will open our lives up to the chastisement and judgment of God. When we do this, it is evident that we do not have a proper respect or discernment for the seriousness and holiness of the Lord's Supper service. God takes this very seriously, even if we do not. And then in verse 30, we face the chastisement and judgment of God. When the Lord's Supper is abused to the level witnessed at Corinth, God will step in with chastisement. The verse, this verse plainly tells us that sickness and death are the results of abusing the Lord's Supper. And then in verse 31, we are told what we need to do in dealing with sins, not only as individuals, but also as a church. This verse tells us that self-examination is the only remedy for sin. When we examine ourselves against the word of God, we see our shortcomings. Then we, confess, then we can confess our sins, forsake them, and receive immediate cleansing. And 1 John 1, 9 comes to mind right away. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I know in the past I've heard remarks that, well, I didn't stay for the Lord's Supper, thinking of in the past when we used to have it at the very end of the service. Someone was asked, a believer, why didn't you stay? Well, I didn't feel worthy. Well, that's why we have this self-examination. It's not, this this self-examination does not prevent us. It prepares us. It enables us as believers to obey the command of the Lord. Do this in remembrance of me. A word about the bread. It refers to a symbol. Jesus took the bread and used it to symbolize his body. When we take the bread, we do not eat flesh, but only a symbol. It also refers to a sacrifice. The battered and bruised body of our Lord calls to mind the terrible price he paid for our redemption on the cross at Calvary. There he endured all the brutality, humiliation, and degradation the human race could dish out. Let me just note here some of the things that he endured for me and for you this morning. He was beaten. We find that in Luke 22. He was scourged. We find that in Matthew 27. He was spit upon. We find that again also in Matthew 27. He was mocked. Matthew 27. He was stripped naked. Matthew 27. He was nailed to the cross and crucified. Matthew 27 and John chapter 20. All of this was done for one reason. For you and for me. Romans 5 and 8 says, But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, unworthy, undeserving 
We didn't merit anything. Christ died for us. This is the gift that we are celebrating this morning. As we take the bread that symbolizes the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Take time this morning to stir up your minds by way of remembrance. And actively, actively meditate upon his battered and bruised body. And then a word about the blood. Again, like the bread, the juice is also symbolic in nature. The blood speaks of a new covenant. In the Old Testament, the sinner approached God through the slain blood of an, through the blood of a slain animal. Under the new covenant, the one which Jesus inaugurated, men must come to God through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can refer to Hebrews 9, verses 11 to 15 in regard to that. The blood also speaks of a new cleansing. The Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Hebrews 9, 22 and according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It takes blood to save the soul. And the only blood that can possess the power to save the soul is the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. First Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 states, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. But a contrast here. Notice the precious contrast with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Under the new covenant, only the blood of Jesus can make the lost sinner clean and prepare him or her for a heavenly home. It is simple faith in the shed blood of Jesus that saves the soul. As we hear so many times, faith alone in Christ alone. The blood speaks of a priceless compassion. Luke 22 verse 20. And in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten saying, This cup which is poured out for you. Is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus reminds us that the blood was poured out for us. He did not die for himself. He did not go to the cross to liberate himself, but to liberate you and me. He died to set us free. And there's a hymn that we don't hear too often. Power in the blood. And I just want to read... Verse 3 says, Would you be whiter, much whiter than snow? There's power in the blood. Power in the blood. Sin stains are lost in its life-giving flow. There's wonderful power in the blood. This morning, as we once again share these emblems around the Lord's table, Let's do as we are commanded. Remember him. Focus on him and the price that was paid.
for our sin at Calvary. Take time for that self-examination. And for whatever's in our life that would prevent us, let's prepare. Let's be enabled to partake this morning. Let's examine and then confess. No one examines you. You don't, want, you don't examine anybody else. It's a self-examination. It's between you and the Lord. You examine yourself. You prepare. You enable yourself to partake. Salvation was provided at a great cost. Jesus suffered, bled, and he died. But he provides his salvation for us as a free gift to all who will receive it. And I like that other hymn that we sing sometimes during the Lord's Supper. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Amen.
The men serving now will come to distribute the elements. And here at Calvary, we wait until all have been served before we partake of the elements, which we will do all together. And if you are here and have not yet placed faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, we ask that you refrain from partaking. This is uh, ordinance for his children, those who have placed faith in him. And if you are here and would like to place faith in, in Christ, uh, simply believe that he died for your sins and that he rose again so that you could be declared righteous by faith in him. And if you would do that, that would qualify you to share in this holy ordinance that he has left for us. Let's continue to sing about the amazing love of our Lord.
The emphasis of all the world's religions can be spelled with two letters, D-O. The Christian gospel, however, is spelled with four letters, D-O-N-E. One of our featured hymns for this service reminds us clearly of this important truth, that our security in this life and our hope for eternity depend not on our own feeble efforts, but solely on Christ's finished work. gospel hymn, Jesus Paid It All, was written by Elvina Hall on Sunday morning in the year 1865. As a member of the choir of the Monument Street Methodist Church in Baltimore, Maryland, she supposedly was listening to the sermon by her pastor, the Reverend George Schrick. Following the service, she approached her pastor timidly with a hymnal in her hand. Sila, think and act on these things. Oh, Pastor, may, may I speak with you a moment, please? Good morning, Mrs. Hall. Say, that choir number was excellent this morning. Did you notice that it was right in line with my sermon? Oh, Pastor, I, I must confess, um... I was not listening as closely as usual to your message this morning. Because you see, when you started talking about how we can know God's love and his forgiveness, I began thinking about how much Christ has already done to prove his love for us. And then these words came to me. And I just had to get them down on paper. But there I was in the choir loft in plain view. And so I just tore a fly leaf out of this hymnal, and I scribbled them down on this. Oh, Elvina, you might just have to pay for that hymnal. <laughs> no, in fact, I firmly believe that when we allow God's word to have an impact on our lives, it stimulates our creative abilities and makes it possible for the Holy Spirit to use our humble talents and bring spiritual blessing to others. It's very possible, Alvina, that God has touched your life in that way this morning. Um, I was wondering if you could have a look at my verses. Well, I really should be on my way. Just to see what you think of them? Oh, all right. Say, I like these lines. Now, that reminds me of something else. A short time ago, our good organist, John Grape, gave me a copy of a new tune he had recently composed. Yes. Here, I have the music right here in my Bible. Mm-hmm. Elvina, you read that first stanza so that I may possibly see if your words might match with John's tune. <laughs> 
I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thy all in all. Oh, that's wonderful. Elvina, the words that you wrote in the choir loft this morning fit perfectly with John Grape's new tune. Now read the rest of your verses for me as well. Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can cleanse the leper's spot and melt the heart of stone. For nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. And when before thy throne I stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save, my lips shall still repeat. Now, all we need is a good refrain. Something that would summarize all these ideas into one strong, final statement. Perhaps something like, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Mrs. Elvina Mabel Hall was born in 1820 in Alexandria, Virginia. Little is known of her life except that she and her husband were faithful members of the Monument Street Methodist Church in Baltimore for more than 40 years. John Grape, composer of the tune, was a successful coal merchant in Baltimore who, as he once stated, dabbled in music for my own amusement. For many years, he was an active layman in the Monument Street Church, working in the Sunday school, as well as serving as the organist and choir director. Jesus Paid It All first appeared in Philip Bliss' Gospel Songbook Collection in 1874, nine years after being written. This hymn, hurriedly written by a laywoman, is still widely sung today, especially during communion services. I'm always amazed that how God could use a simple housewife like me and an humble organist like John Grape, and of course, an encouraging pastor like Reverend Shrick, to bring this hymn to people all over the world. You know, I think if God could use someone like me, he can use almost anyone. Perhaps, maybe, you.
This familiar hymn is from the pen of a remarkable and colorful minister of the gospel, John Newton. Before his conversion, he was known as a vile blasphemer, an infidel, engaged in the despicable business of buying and then transporting black human beings as slaves to wealthy patrons around the world. On his tombstone in a small parish churchyard in Olney, England, can still be seen this inscription written by Newton himself. John Newton Clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slavers in Africa, was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Until the time of his death at age 82, John Newton never ceased to marvel at the grace of God that had so dramatically transformed his sinful life. This was always the dominant theme of his preaching and writing. Shortly before Newton's death in 1807, a spokesman for the church suggested that the old pastor consider retirement because of his failing health, eyesight, and memory. Newton responded, What? Shall an old African blasphemer stop while he can still speak? On another occasion, just before his death, he is quoted as proclaiming from his pulpit with a loud voice. My memory may have failed me, but I can remember two things. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. During these later years, it was necessary for an assistant to stand in the pulpit to help Newton deliver his sermons. One Sunday, he had repeated the words, Jesus Christ is precious. You have already said that twice, whispered his helper. Go on. I have said it twice, and I'm going to say it again. Then the rafters rang as the old preacher shouted anew, Jesus Christ is precious! John Newton's mother, a godly woman, died when he was just seven years of age. After several unhappy years of formal schooling at a boarding school, John left the school and joined his father's ship at the age of 11 to begin his life as a seaman. His early years were one continuous round of rebellion and debauchery. After serving on several ships, Newton eventually became the captain of his own slave ship. Needless to say, the buying and selling and transporting of black slaves was a cruel and vicious way of life. In 1748, while Newton was returning to England from Africa during a particularly stormy voyage that lasted nearly a month, it often appeared that all would be lost. Fearfully, Newton began reading a book by Thomas Akempis titled The Imitation of Christ. Thomas was a Dutch monk who lived during the 15th century and belonged to a religious order called the Brethren of the Common Life. This book and the scriptures were used by the Holy Spirit to sow the seeds of John's conversion during the frightening experience at sea. It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fear relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. At the age of 39, 
John Newton was ordained by the State Church of England and began his first pastorate at the parish church in Olney, a small community of poor farmers and lace makers. Especially effective during this Olney ministry was the often related story of his early life and conversion experience. In addition to preaching for the stated services in his own church, Newton would hold meetings in any large buildings that could be secured in the surrounding area. This was an unheard practice for an Anglican clergyman of that day. But wherever he preached, large crowds gathered to hear the old converted slave trader and sea captain. Another of Newton's unusual practices at Olney Church was the singing of hymns that expressed the simple, heartfelt truths of his preaching, rather than using only the stately psalms from the Psalter. When Newton couldn't find enough appropriate hymns for his own purpose, he began writing his own. He also enlisted the, friend of his, the help of his friend and neighbor, William Cooper, a well-known author of classic literature. In 1779, their combined efforts produced the Olney Hymns Hymnal, one of the important contributions made to the evangelical hymnody. Amazing Grace was one of his nearly 300 hymns written by John Newton for that collection. The tune for this text is an early American folk melody, a plantation song titled Loving Lambs. It was first published with John Newton's Amazing Grace text in 1831, nearly 25 years after his death. During the remainder of the 19th century, there was scarcely a hymnal published throughout the country that did not include this hymn. And still today, Amazing Grace, with its simply stated text and singable folk melody, is one of the favorite hymns of God's people everywhere. We as believers should never lose the appreciation of God's gift of grace, providing our eternal salvation, meeting our daily needs, and guiding us to our heavenly home. Amazing grace, how it saved a wretch like me.
in Revelation chapter 5, verse 10 or 11, I believe it says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and glory and strength and wisdom and power forever. That's what we will be declaring one day around the throne of God. And I look forward to that day together with all the saints of the ages. Don't you? Amen. Let's proclaim that he is worthy.
Father, we thank you that we can worship you and adore you, that we can magnify your holy name. You are worthy, my Father. And we had a wonderful time this morning through our hymns fest to, and to gather around the table to express to you our love, our commitment, and our gratitude for all that you have done, is doing, and will continue to do for us as your children. Lord, thank you for paving the way for us to worship you corporately and having the freedom in this country to gather for corporate worship. We thank you, Lord. Help us not to take it for granted, nor to become complacent in our relationship with you. But, Father, we choose to honor you and we choose to worship you. And we thank you that this morning we had that opportunity. Dismiss us now as we go to our various homes. Take us safely there and bring us safely back as we, uh, this evening, look into the role of a righteous man through Joseph as a message that started from last Sunday. We thank you so much and ask your blessing over our time and give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.